You guys, thank you for being here. You can be seated, and if you have a Bible, the book of Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to finish it up today, first day of the new year, last day of this 15-week sermon series in the book of Galatians, and so what a cool way to start the year by ending and, and uh, doing a final summary of this great book, and hopefully we've learned some really good things. And so uh, to, to kind of remind us in a nutshell of where we've been and why we've been studying gospel strong uh, in the book of Galatians, the big idea through all of these chapters, through six chapters, through what's now 15 sermons, here's the big idea in one statement, and I've tried to say it several different times, that trusting in anything at all other than Jesus and Jesus alone in order to gain or to maintain acceptance with God leads to futility rather than freedom. That was the situation in the first century in this little group of churches that the Apostle Paul was writing to. And he had gone to this group of churches and he had told them the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that we learned in chapters 1 and 2 had actually changed his life. And in that biography of Paul in Galatians 1 and 2, you realize that he was a person who had done all the religious works and it had led him to futility, that he had trusted in something far different than Jesus to gain acceptance with God. And it had led him to futility. And so he wanted to tell these people in the first century, look, there's Jesus and there's something called the gospel that Jesus died for you and died for your sins so that you could have acceptance with God regardless of the works that you do. And Paul told them that, but then some other religious people came in, and they weren't big fans of Jesus. And so they said, Jesus is a good starting point, but you need to add some things to Jesus in order to really be acceptable to God. And, and I've tried to argue throughout the whole course of this series is that the church in the first century was undergoing something that's very similar to the church in the 21st century. And that Jesus is a popular starting place for a lot of religious people. But for some reason, we think we have to add extra things to Jesus to gain or to maintain our acceptance with God. And that always leads to futility rather than the freedom that God has created us. And Galatians chapter 5 says that we were made for freedom so that we should live free. I like uh, John MacArthur and his commentary on Galatians says that there's really, there's like two main ways that any religion falls into one of two categories in terms of like relationship with God and pursuing a relationship with God. The, the first way that most religions fall in, the first category in terms of trying to find acceptance with God, category number one, it, it's, it starts with rules. You make a lot of rules, you figure out the rules, what are the things that the God likes and doesn't like, we do the things he likes, we don't do the things that he doesn't like, and we make a, a lot of rules and laws and do's and don'ts, and so we start with that, and then we work our way toward God, so you've got rules, and then you've got works, and so if I obey all the rules, I do all the do's, I don't all the don'ts, then I'm working toward acceptance with God, and God will look down on me and like me more. And the problem is, is that when you have rules and you have works, that always leads to the flesh. It always leads to me doing something to like find my way toward God or to make God like me or love me more. That's the way that all religions outside of Christianity pursue a relationship with some sort of God or pursue acceptance with God. It's rules and it's works and it's flesh. But the New Testament teaches us a different way. And that starts, instead of rules, it starts with grace. For by grace you have been saved. 
that God pursued you in grace, that God gave his son in grace, that grace is unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that God gave us grace and that we accept that grace through faith and that in fact even our faith is a gift of God's grace. That we place our faith, not in our works or in our goodness, but we place our faith in Christ and what he's already done. And what that then leads to is spirit-filled living. And I would say that rules and works and flesh always leads to futility. Whereas grace and faith and spirit always leads to freedom. And that's what Paul's been talking about through this whole great book. And today he's going to finish this book. And it's an interesting way that he finishes, just like it's an interesting way that he started. And if you've forgotten, I'll remind you. Remember he, he started by saying, you idiots! And some of you are like, you can say that? And I'm like, the Bible says it, so of course you can say it. Now, you know, keep it in context. Don't just go home to your kids and be like, you guys are idiots. I mean, maybe they are, but like, be gentle with it. Right? But he starts the he finishes this letter the same way he started, right? There's no thanksgiving. So usually at the end of these New Testament letters, you read them, and he's like, man, I just told you some really tough stuff. I'm really thankful for you. I'm really thankful that you listen. I'm really thankful that we're friends. I'm really thankful that you still like me. There's no thanksgiving for them in, in the end of this. He doesn't greet them at the end and say, hey, greet each other and give each other loves and kisses and all the warm fuzzies and things like he does in other letters. There's no praise for them. There's no prayer at the end of this where he's like praying for them. There's not even a desire. He, he doesn't even say, hey, I'm really looking forward to when I get to see you. He does that often in some of the other letters. None of that in this. This has been a strong, hard tough difficult message and, and he's going to carry that all the way through and what we're going to find is instead of all the platitudes and the niceties and all those those different things in verses 11 through 18 of our text in this last like paragraph of this letter he's going to reiterate all that he's been saying for six chapters he's going to reiterate those main ideas and, and draw them back to remembrance because they're just that important and I'm going to break them down into two main categories. And I'll give you those in a minute. But before I do that, I want you to look at verse 11. Galatians 6.11 says this. Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And this is a clue for us in, in what's going on here. Here's what you can think of when you see that. Here, see with what large letters I'm writing with my own hand. This is you bringing up your word processing document on your computer, and you click bold, and you click underline, and you click italics, and you highlight it, and you click the little yellow blocky thing that highlights it all. When you do that, what are you trying to do to the person that you're writing to? Or if you guys are down front, and you don't know what computers or word processors are, but you have a phone, and you text. I get texts regularly, and they're in all caps. Right? The whole text is just all caps. What is someone trying to do when they're doing that? They're saying, listen up, pay attention, this is really important. When in verse 11, Galatians 6, 11, is bold, italics, underlined, you know, aerial black, extra bold, 18 font, highlighted, pay attention. And, and what happened in this day is that the, Paul may not have actually had really great penmanship. I feel a kindred spirit with Paul. 
He probably didn't have great penmanship. He probably also had bad eyesight. So guys like Paul and Peter and some of the other writers of the New Testament, we know they would hire what was called an amanuensis, a professional scribe. That person's whole job was to have good penmanship and to be able to write nice things that people can actually read, right? Some of us, like back in our school days when they actually made you write cursive, does anyone remember those days? Oh, yeah, right? Got in trouble and had to erase it regularly because no one could read what we were writing. So they would hire these people, and, and the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would dictate the letter, and the other person would write it down. And their whole job was to write clearly and write so people could see. And, and because paper, parchment in that day, and the things that they wrote on um, was uh, much more expensive than today, they wrote pretty small, but you could still read what they were writing. But every once in a while, the person who was actually doing the dictating, the person who the letter was coming from, would be like, this is something extra important, and I need people to know it. And they would sit down at the desk, and they would take the pen, and they would dip it, and they would actually write it in bigger, bold letters. It was actually kind of a different Greek alphabet even for, for what they were using. It was like they were writing in all caps. And if you were reading through that document... You would see all the nice, neat, small letters, and you'd be reading it, and that's really good. And that would actually jump off the page as if it had been written in bold. And you would say, man, this is super important. I need to pay attention to this. Some people believe that Paul wrote this whole book like that, this whole letter like that, because this whole thing was so important. Others, including myself, believe that at this point, he took the pen and he wrote, and he said, this is so vitally important because he's going to summarize this whole argument that he's made, and he's going to help us understand what it means to be able to live that gospel-strong life. And he's going to start by talking about the way of outward religion. He's going to say, through this whole book, we've been really kind of talking about two different ways that we can live. And the first of those ways is the way of outward religion. And I'll tell you about the way of outward religion. But let's read verses 12 and 13. Paul says in verse 12, Galatians 6, 12, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. That circumcision thing was kind of like the... the, the uh, the big flower, if you were, the, the big weed that, that showed that there were some bad roots, okay? The roots were bad, and there was this weed that was growing. The weed was this circumcision idea, but there was like some bad roots that had lots of other problems going on with it. He says, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. I'll tell you a couple of things about the way of outward religion that we see here. The first thing is this that, that outward religion is always most concerned with making a good outward impression. It's always most concerned with keeping and making a good outward impression. He says, the beginning of verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be. Circumcised. There were people, spiritual leader kind of people, who wanted other people to look at them and think, wow, they're really great. Wow, look at their converts. Wow, look at their ministry. Wow, look at the things that are going on with them. Look at the fruit of all of their labors. They must be really spiritual. They must be really great. There were people who wanted to be spiritually impressive. Outward religion is always most concerned with being spiritually impressive to other people. You read the gospel accounts of the Pharisees, and that was right where they were at. 
their biggest concern and Jesus' strongest indictment against them was because they were most concerned with being outwardly spiritually impressive. And here's what often happens. That in order to be impressive to other people, we force other people into our standards so that we look good, right? We force other people, especially in secondary issues, we force other people to abide by our standards, our rules, our regulations, so that we look good. Here's our list of rules. It's not the Bible, it's a different document. And look at the great rules that we have. And like, we're so spiritual because like we've even taken rules that aren't in the Bible and we've put them in our document and we're more spiritual than the Bible or people who just read the Bible because we have extra rules and churches do that today and I think well that sounds familiar because I think that's what the Pharisees were doing you see we have stances on certain issues we have important stances on big cultural issues the stance that this church takes on gender the stance that this church takes on marriage and those types of issues that are relevant to our culture right now are born out of a heart of love for people. We have a worldview that says that God created man and God created woman and that marriage is a man and a woman. We don't hate people who see that differently. We hurt, we should hurt for people who see that differently because we know that God is good and God designed things to work in a certain way and if we see people misusing what God intended for good rather than hate them we should hurt for them but what I don't want to do is go out and try to gain a lot of converts so that they'll all come in and I can say man look how impressive I am look how great our ministry is we've got all of these people who have converted to our standards because we're so great it's not about an outward impression but what was happening in Paul's day with this group of people is that these leaders were coming and, and it says right there it, it, they wanted to make a good showing in the flesh so they forced their secondary standards on other people. Outward religion also is primarily concerned with personal safety and well-being. The rest of verse 12 says it like this. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cause of Christ. The people who were coming and causing trouble in Paul's churches were not concerned with gospel advancement. They were not concerned with the people, primarily, the spiritual welfare of the people who they were caring for. Their attitude was this, like, like let's not like cause trouble because that might get us in trouble, right? And in fact, without going into all the history of it, uh, in Rome and in the Roman Empire in that day, actually Jewish people, like, People who followed the Jewish religion, um, they enjoyed some exceptions to emperor worship. And when Christians came along, the Jewish people were worried that, that the Romans were going to look at the Christians and say, Oh, I don't know about them, and take all the privileges of the Jews away because of what the Christians were doing. And the Jews persecuted the Christians because the Jews didn't want to be persecuted by the Romans. And so rather than really thinking about like what is God's agenda here it was how can we stay safe like how can we toe the line play it safe conform one of the ways that churches often exhibit outward a desire for outward religion and, and personal safety and well-being is that we kind of poo-poo hard questions right we kind of say like I know that there are you have hard questions but those aren't welcome here some of you grew up in churches in situations that when you ask difficult questions about God and the Bible and, and things like that, 
that rather than somebody sitting down across the table and acknowledging, man, that's a really good question that a lot of people have. Let's explore that question together. You may be received from a pastor or a parent or a teacher or someone else like, oh, don't worry about that. God will take care of it. Right? How could a good God allow evil and suffering? Oh, don't worry about it. He's in control. Right? And as Christians, sometimes we've done a poor job of allowing hard questions. In our youth ministry, we tell the kids all the time, your questions are welcome here. Because there's not a question that's so big that God can't answer it. And if I have to hide from those questions and push those questions away and, and like deflect those questions, that says some things about my faith, doesn't it? And so for us, it's not about personal safety and well-being. And, and can I say that in that day, the spiritual people, the Jewish people, again, enjoyed some privileges from the great empire at large. And when Christians came in and proclaimed the message of Jesus, it got ugly. It got ugly from the Roman Empire, and it got ugly from the other spiritual people. Do you think we're close to that today? Do you think when I stand up here and proclaim the things that, that God has, has told me to proclaim in his word, you guys, you go three or four hours north, and there have been people that have been imprisoned for saying some of the things that I just said. Do you think it's going to take long for it to get here? And I'm not a doomsday prophet, but hard days are coming. And if we care about personal safety and well-being, what are we going to hang on the side of the building? If we care about outward religion and everybody else just thinking that we're in line with culture and we're good to go if i'm not willing to give up my 501c3 our 501c3 status i don't get a tax deduction for my tithes what right like prepare ourselves because if personal safety and well-being is our idol we will not be gospel strong and in this church two thousand years ago personal safety and well-being we don't want the romans to come in and say that we can worship our god our way we don't want to come in and say that we have to be polytheists like they've been kind of cool with us and we've coexisted because we keep our space and they keep ours we don't preach against their atrocities and they kind of leave us alone and let us do our own thing and now this new group comes in and says well wait a minute here's what the spirit of god has said and here's what the gospel of jesus is and here's what we're supposed to be doing and following no don't say that too loud because you might get in trouble personal safety and well-being outward religion the last marker or characteristic in this text and you're reading that correctly sinful spiritual accomplishments what does that mean verse 13 for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, I'll leave aside like the scalp hunters analogies and those kind of things, because I'm not sure how appropriate that is. But you can insert it if you'd like to. They wanted to boast in the flesh, literally, of these people. Hey, we got them circumcised. Look how amazing we are. Spiritual things can be sinful. Things that have an outward appearance of being spiritual. Things that look good. Things that are said in the name of religion. Things that are said in the name of, even in the name of the Bible. Things that outwardly look spiritual can be sinful. Sometimes that's just about motives. 
And in this scenario, you can see they weren't even keeping the law themselves. Remember what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 23? Uh, he, he said a bunch of interesting things about the Pharisees. You should look it up. It's crazy. But one of the things that he said, he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, right? So on the outside, they would take and they would like paint these tombs and make them look beautiful and amazing and awesome, and, and, and they would whitewash them. But what's still inside? Death and decay. And he says, that's you. Like, you look great on the outside, and you've got your phylacteries, and you've got your little robes, and you've got all the outward things, but inside, death and decay. It's the same thing here. You can look really spiritual and still be really sinful and take a lot of pride in your spiritual activities that are really sinful activities. That's outward religion, that they may boast in your flesh. There's no ownership of personal sin in outward religion. Do you know that? That in, in a church and in a culture, a church culture that really values like good outward impression, personal safety and well-being, pride in those sinful spiritual accomplishments, there's no place for somebody to be able to come and say, I'm really struggling with this. Hey, I've, I've fallen into sin. I've fallen into temptation in this area. There's no place for people owning their sin. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago? If a brother is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him and keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted, bear each other's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's no room for that in outward religion. But there is room for that in a gospel-strong life, in a gospel-strong church. There is room for that at Puyallup Community Baptist Church because we're not going to follow the way of outward religion. We're not going to set on a pedestal outward spiritual ideas and ideologies that are devoid of any kind of heart. We're not going to just pursue personal safety and well-being, whether it's from the government or whether it's from other Christians or whoever else it is. We're not going to take pride, and we're not going to set the barometer of how we're doing spiritually by these accomplishments that are numbers-based and budget-based and all of those kinds of things. Instead... We're going to do what he talks about in the next verses. We're going to live the gospel strong life. And that starts in verse 14 with taking pride in Christ's accomplishment. Verse 14. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's one place to put your pride. There's one place to put your boasting. And you'll say, well, what about back up in verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4? Let each one test his own works, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. That's because his boasting is that he's, he's doing off of what Christ has done for him. See, there's one foundation for our boasting. There's a song that we sing frequently here at PCBC. I will boast in Christ alone, his righteousness and not my own. I will cling to Christ. His mercy reigns now and forever. There's one place to put our boasting. There's one place to put our spiritual pride. And the beautiful thing about that is when, when my pride is in Christ's accomplishments, that's the most freeing place in the world for me. Because instead of all of that rules and works and flesh and clawing to try to get acceptance with God, I realize it is finished on the cross meant my acceptance has been paid for. 
And I can take pride in the accomplishments. And Paul says that the world has been crucified to me. That I no longer live to that. And as a matter of fact, the second thing in the next verse, the inward spiritual life, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Right? It's not about the outward rule. It's not about the outward law. But it's not about either saying, oh, I don't have to obey those things. He says it's not about anything related to the outward. But a new creation. A new creation. Remember how this same author said it to a different church? 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ... If anyone is a Christian, if anybody has uh, accepted Christ as their Savior, has become a Christian, is walking by faith in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And what he's talking about there is so far from this outward spirituality. Folks, like outward spiritual actions will never change your heart. Right? Like this focus on like external spirituality never changes our heart. And the, the deal with that is this. Like our big problem between us and God is not an action problem. That's why this whole like, well, I can be good enough and work my way to God. Or, you know, how do you get to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Like pretty good person isn't even the problem, right? Heart, sinful nature, like that's the problem. It's not even about first working off your, or paying your penance or doing those things. It's about having a heart that's jacked up. And so when he says you are a new creation, he's talking about more than just I changed some actions, right? It's the new year. I started my new Bible reading plan, right? I got my diet ready to go. I got my Bible reading plan ready to go. And in about 16 days, I'm living on a steady diet of Edo's. And I'm in Genesis chapter 4. And I'm like, this is really weird, right? <laughs> yeah, we laugh. We've been, we've been there. But man, when God gets a hold of my heart and changes my heart and changes my life and I'm a new creation and I long for and I like hunger and thirst for his word and I desire his word, like that's when some change is going on because there's inward spiritual life that's happening. Verse 16 gives us the next one. It says that, that the gospel strong life emphasizes the relationships before the rules, and it says it like this. And as for all who walk by this rule, I love what he does there because this whole thing has been about laws, and he says, well, there's actually a different rule that's way more important. It's the one that he talked about the previous verse, the rule of new creation, the rule of inward spiritual change. He says, if you walk by that rule, peace and mercy be upon you. Peace and mercy are relationship words, relationship between us and God. You see, peace is restored when we have peace with God. I talked about that last week at Christmas. And, and mercy is God giving us the ability to have a relationship with him. Those are relationship words. He says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's talking about people who believe in Jesus, the family of God, the people of God. That there's vertical relationship with God, and that affects our horizontal relationship with other people. And he says those relationships are what are important before the rules. And I'll give you an illustration, and I think that only about 10 or 12 people are going to get this illustration, but I'll throw it out there anyway. He says, thinking about like this idea of relationship and rules, we talk about that quite a bit as Christians. And in God's providence, this last week, we watched Matilda the musical. 
How many of you have heard of that? So I'll know just how far this is going to flop. Four of you in the back and you guys up front. Good. So if you've read the Roald Dahl book, uh, Matilda, or seen the movie Matilda, or now the musical Matilda, it's actually pretty popular. And what it is, this little girl grows up in a really bad family. She's completely unwanted. And then finally, CPS steps in, and she's going to go to school. She's excited. She's pumped to to go to school. And so she's going to go to school. She shows up the first day, and it's like this castle of terror that she shows up to, to this school. But she ends up in a classroom with this really amazing teacher who loves her and loves children and wants them to learn. The problem is, is that the uh, person who runs the school, the schoolmaster, is certifiably insane. If you've seen the movie, she locks children in boxes that have spikes and things like that. That probably some of us have thought about doing, but would never actually do. Okay, Right. Some of you are like, I I see not a problem with this. But the schoolmaster is just an evil person and is intentionally mean to children. And one of the things I love is every shot where you're in the school, it's don't do this and children are evil and you can't do that and you're bad and you're terrible and you're awful. And every time that the schoolmaster comes in, the ominous music plays, the kids freak out and she has some new rule. She's locking a kid up. She's body slamming a child, which I don't think is legal in our school system, but should be. And lots of bad things happen, right? And at one point, in the movie, she says something that I thought, like, there is bearing to this for how we view the Christian life. She says, in order to be educated, children must first be broken. And the teacher who loves the kids is like, oh, what? And all the kids hear it, and they're like, what? No. I think that's how we view God sometimes. We think God is like this mean, angry schoolmaster who has all these do's and don'ts and a lot more don'ts than do's, and that God somehow feels that, like, in order to teach us, we must first be broken. But what I love about Matilda, that movie, is that the the person who wins the day is this teacher who realizes that the way that you help and teach and and, and, uh, care for kids is love. It's not rules and anger and a fist of punishment, that it's true love. And that when rules have to be enforced, they're enforced in love. And when standards and guidelines need to be put into place, they're put in place in love. Folks, that's a picture of the Christian life. That God is not an angry schoolmaster with lots of rules waiting to come down on you and break you. That God is a loving father. He is a father who cares for you. And that all of the rules... like. The rules about human sexuality, the rules about gender roles, the rules about all of these things are rules out of love from a loving heavenly father. And when we pursue a relationship with God outside of just keeping and following all the rules, we're beginning to understand the heart of God and live the gospel strong life. And when he says that peace and mercy will be upon you, that's how you find true peace. Some of you don't have peace because you think the way to God is just through keeping all the rules. You're living that life of futility because you think that, like, if I keep enough rules and I do enough good things, if I'm spiritual enough, then God will love me and accept me. God already loves you. God's already accepted you. If you're a child of God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it's paid for. It's finished. You're accepted by God through Jesus Christ. Welcome to the family. Live in relationship with him. Verse 17 says that the gospel strong life is characterized by personal sacrifice. 
for gospel advancement. It says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That word marks is actually an ancient word for, for um, branding, you know, where you would take a, an iron and brand someone. Paul says, I've been branded for Jesus. And if you read Acts prior to uh, the, the first missionary journey, you read the first missionary journey in the book of Acts, you realize that, in fact, he had borne on his body the scars of being beaten and being stoned and probably maybe even at that point some shipwreck and things like that, that he had undergone physical punishment for the cause of Christ. But, man, when, I, when God gets a hold of my life and I'm living in a relationship with God, you know what? Personal sacrifice for gospel advancement doesn't seem like that big of a deal and it is a far cry from the way of outward religion and outward religion's desire to simply protect and self-preserve personal sacrifice for gospel advancement then the final one verse 18 and i told you that paul kind of finishes it pretty bluntly but even in that we see his heart for people in the very last verse the grace of our lord jesus christ be with your spirit brothers or brothers and sisters amen and he uses that term adelphoi brothers brothers and sisters that term that is actually a, a term of endearment you see he started with you fools but he ends with brothers and sisters he's got genuine con concern and care for other people when I'm living the gospel strong life, when God has transformed my heart, transformed my life, and I'm living out of inward spirituality, when I'm putting my relationship with God before keeping all the rules, I'm living in peace and mercy. I'm willing to sacrifice personally for gospel advancement, and I have a genuine care and concern for other people. My job isn't, my goal isn't, if I'm living that way, just to get people to conform to my outward spirituality so that I look good. As a pastor, it's not just for me to put butts in seats and dollars in the bank but it really is that we have genuine concern for each other and genuine care for each other in such a way that we do what God's word has called us to do so I'm going to end this series and end this sermon like this I'm going to in just a minute I'm going to pray and I'm going to lead us in two different prayers if you're not a Christian today and you've been here a week or a few weeks and you've been hearing some of this stuff and you're at the place where you're like I'm ready to like Acknowledge and admit that I am in fact a sinner by nature and by choice like I admit that I'm a sinner And I know and I admit that that sin separates me from a relationship with God And I admit that I can't do anything to get there on my own If you're ready to admit that and you're ready to trust in Christ for your salvation In a moment i'll give you a a, a prayer not that will save you But that can help share your heart with God so that you can become a christian this is like calling for the question. Maybe you've been hearing this for a while, and you're like, I need to become a Christian. I need to give my heart to God. I want that for you today. But maybe you're here, you're a Christian, and you've been like living the Christian life for a long time. The prayer for some of us today is a prayer of repentance. It's repenting from our outward spirituality, our outward religion, in all the little places that maybe it's crept in. And so I want to lead us in a prayer of repentance for that outward spirituality. And you can follow along in your mind and your heart as well. Um, and my prayer doesn't do anything for you, but wherever your heart is, God knows. And so we want to do that. So I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes with me. And again, 
if you're not normally, if you're kind of new here, this is not something that we do every week, but I do want to take an opportunity. So if you guys could bow your heads and close your eyes, and if, if you're not a Christian, you want to accept Christ, we want to become a Christian today, you just could pray on your own quietly something like this, God, I admit that I am a sinner and that my sin separates me from you. I admit that I can't do anything on my own to gain your acceptance. But I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins so that I can be accepted by you. And I trust him as my Savior and my Lord today. And I don't want anybody to look up right now, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything like that, but if you've prayed that prayer today, like, welcome to the family, you're a Christian. And I'd love to talk with you afterwards, give you a Bible, give you some things to, to think about. So if that's you, I'd love to have a conversation with you today. I'm going to pray this next prayer, and again, for any of us who need to do business with God related to our focus on outward religion, I just invite you to pray as well. And God, for me personally, as a, a pastor, as a Christian, I know that there are places in my life that outward religion and outward religious practices crowd out a relationship with you. God, I, I repent of allowing the outward to crowd out an inward heart for you. I ask that you would point out those places in my life where I need to continue to repent. And I, I pray that you would take the anxiety away, that you would take the frustration away, that you would fill me with your peace, that you would help me to understand what it means to live a gospel-strong life that I would live filled with the Spirit, that I would exhibit the characteristics that are the characteristics of the Spirit, that I would be walking away from sin and walking toward relationship with you. God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters who are here as well today. I pray that you would continue to convict us of that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to have the worship team come. We're going to sing one more song this morning. And again, as they're coming, I'll tell you that uh, for one more week, there's some reflection questions, some discussion questions online. I've tried to give some things there, again, that help you press into what God may be doing uh, with His Word. I would encourage you, grab those, uh, talk to them with your spouse, your kids, in a small group with a couple of other people, and like really process what it is that God is doing and how He's using His Word.